Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I'm Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brothers, good to see you again uh, this week. So we've got a, several episodes here on Calvinism versus Arminianism. And yeah. I think it's been a good topic so far. And it's an important one, right? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think there is misunderstandings on both sides. Um, I think there are straw men on both sides. And even those, as you mentioned, that call themselves Arminian, I don't think they have understood what it really means to be Arminian. And, and traditionally within evangelical evangelicalism, for those who may be new to this topic, or maybe this is your first podcast episode listening, um, we've been stepping through the, um, the major points of, uh, of Calvinism and Arminianism. And, and this is really one of the primary debates that's always been kind of out there. And, uh, and, and certainly Calvinism has been strawmanned, Arminianism has been strawmanned. So we're seeking to go through point by point just to understand what is it that it really teaches and biblically, where would we go to support our positions? So absolutely. And, it, you know, you make a good point. Oftentimes when people uh, speak about theological positions, a lot of straw men's get thrown in there, right? Things that uh, that position doesn't really believe. And, you know, I think as believers, we whether we agree with the position or not, the, what we don't want to ever do is misrepresent it, right? Yeah. Um, and and so we want to be faithful to what it teaches, although we may be we may disagree with it, because in reality, that's really the only way you can r- rebut a position is if you understand it correctly to start with, right? Yeah. Um, uh, otherwise, you're you know you're 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 battling something that doesn't even really exist, and. That happens a lot with Arminianism as well as as with Calvinism. So today um, we're we're going to jump back in. We've gone over uh, total depravity versus human ability or free will. We've talked about unconditional election and conditional election. Uh, so today we're going to talk about. We'll see how far we get, but limited atonement would be the next one for uh, Calvinism. So one of the five points of Calvinism is. Limited atonement. Um, it, there's another word that uh, folks are using for that now, and honestly, I can't remember what it is because uh, I don't use it. Do, do you remember the term? Oh my, not not off the top of my head. Effectual, Effectual something. or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but traditionally, it would be referred to in the acrostic tulip. It would be the L, limited atonement. So, what do we mean when we say limited atonement? Well, Calvinism, when we say limited atonement, what we mean is that. Jesus died as a substitute for the elect, right? For those who he chose to save before the foundations of the earth, Um, that his death does not atone for the sins of just anyone who dies, but only for believers. And that's what we mean. It's limited, um, not in its efficacy. It's limited in its scope, right? If we were to say that, uh, Christ died to cover the sins of just everyone full stop, you would be a universalist because it would mean you don't have to accept Christ. You just, everyone right. is covered. Um, and so that's what we mean by limited atonement, limited in scope, not in efficacy. Um, and that's important because a lot of people immediately just get hung up on the word limited, right? How can you limit the blood of Jesus? But that's not what we mean. 
Yeah, a couple of um, alternative terms, and I couldn't find the one with effectual, but one is definite atonement. Um, some people definite use that. And, and the other one that sometimes gets used is particular redemption. Um, and, and you're right. So people get hung up on the term limited as if we're saying that there are limits to um, to, to how well the or the works of Christ, how well it applies to, to those who believe. And, and just as you said, there um, it's not limited for those who are actually saved. It's limited in terms of, of the breadth and who it applies uh, applies to. And th- this is really, I would say, for the five points of Calvinism, uh, if you get someone that um, identifies themselves as a four-point Calvinist, um, 99 times out of 100, the, the fifth point that they don't agree on is basically this one. So this is the most controversial point. And even those who would call themselves um, Calvinists uh, will will either hedge, uh, will call themselves a half point in this in this area, or they will just say they don't they don't believe this point at all. Yeah, and and so it's it's good that we understand exactly what we mean. Um, and, and so this is the position, right? It's basically that the blood of Christ um, is a, is is sufficient for and efficient and effective. For all of those who come to know Christ, I mean, there's another way to say that, right? So all of those who profess faith in Christ, right, are are redeemed and and covered and are atoned for. All those who are who don't come to Christ, right, obviously they're not atoned for, and that's very simply what we mean. Um, and so we're not in any way limiting God's power. We're just it, this is just a way of recognizing in our modern society, maybe limited isn't a good word, but I'm going to keep using it because I can't remember the other ones. Um, But uh, it's just a way of understanding to whom the blood of Christ applies, to whom his atoning work applies. So the opposite, the Arminian view, um, one of the pillars of Arminianism, the five pillars of Arminianism, is just very simply the opposite, unlimited atonement. Now, unlimited atonement teaches that Christ died for all of mankind, paying the price of redemption for all of man, but does only guarantee forgiveness for those whom choose to believe, and as many are as redeemed because of their belief, okay? Um, and those who aren't redeemed will eventually be damned because of unbelief. Well, if that sounds remarkably similar, just worded very different, it's because it is. (laughs) I mean, basically. Um, And so what they've done is they've just nuanced or explained what they mean by the blood of Christ um, has been given for all of mankind. Jesus Christ died for all of mankind, but they don't want to say that full stop. And so Arminianism then goes to describe the fact that it only guarantees redemption for all those who believe. So, in my mind, really, these points are about the same. Uh, it's just how we're describing the word. And so, um, b- because as a believer, no one believes that everyone's just automatically saved. Right? If you're a Christian and you understand right. just the fundamentals, no one believes that. Um, and so, I would argue that in reality, everyone believes in limited atonement. Everyone. Either you believe, you would say that you believe the atonement is limited to those whom God has chosen, right. or you would say it's limited to those who choose to believe God. So it's limited in some way. It's just a matter of how, how you uh, define what that limit is. Right. And so really the issue would come down to um, a, a, an argument for or against predestination and free will, which we've already spoken about that, right? Um, And so, limited atonement for Calvinism, the atonement 
is uh, limited to those whom God chooses and foreordains to become adopted as sons through Christ. Uh, the Arminian view, unlimited atonement, the Christ died for all of mankind, but it only guarantees salvation for those who choose to believe God. And so the, the, those are the two differences there. Pretty simple. I think if we uh, just took the time to understand, you know, what we mean by the word limited, really that one would not be as much of a hangup. Um, the hangup is going to ultimately go back to the first ones we talked about. Um, yeah, if you if you understand the first two, right? If you if we understand the first two points that we discussed uh, prior to this episode, total depravity—the idea that man is totally depraved, he does not choose God. And it's not because, um, and often we throw around the word uh, free will, people throw around the term free will, and we talked about that in that episode of Total Depravity. Man in his own free will never chooses God. That's the way I would put it. That's total depravity. And we see that in Romans chapter 3. And so, if we understand that man never chooses God, then somehow God needs to intervene or else everyone goes to hell. Um, everyone's going to die without putting their faith into um, into God and Jesus Christ. And so that's what led to the second point, which is the unconditional election, that God had to elect those whom he would save. And by electing them, it means that he is going to do a work in their hearts so that they would be able to know and understand the gospel and ultimately respond to it. Um, because once someone really uh, understands the gospel, understands who Jesus Christ is and what he did, um, they're at that point, their will is going to be so changed that they wouldn't want to choose anything else. And that kind of ties into the next point we'll talk about a little bit later, which is irresistible grace. But if you understand those two points, that, that the starting point of man, that he's totally depraved, and that it required an election from God that, that was unconditional, meaning it did not depend on anything that we did, none of our works, um, then you also have to understand from there that God already knew by the time Jesus Christ went to the cross, God already knew exactly uh, what, uh, what sins needed to be atoned for. So, for those who have put their faith into Jesus Christ, all of your sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. And if God already knows who has been elected, um, then the idea is that the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus Christ would cover exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and well, let's just move on to the next one. I, I think the limited atonement, unlimited atonement is a rather simple one when you you know just explain it that way. Um, irresistible grace would be the, Cal the next Calvinist position, right? Um, so, it, irresistible grace, when we talk about that, we're talking about the fact that nothing prevents God from saving those whom he has chosen. And he's chosen them before the foundations of the world, we're told, right, in Ephesians and in other places. So, every person that God has chosen will be saved through faith in Christ through the call of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we mean by irresistible grace. Yeah, I think of John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37 says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And that's the words of Jesus Christ, and he's talking about the fact that uh, the Father needs to draw you to him. And the the context of this statement makes it even stronger because he's confronted with uh, a bunch of people who say they believe him, but they are starting to reject him and walk away the more truth that they hear from Jesus Christ. And rather than Jesus Christ trying to compromise with them or try to win them back, he essentially just shares his truth that, look, 
the ones who the Father gives to me, um, they will come to me and I will certainly not cast out. And then he says it another way in verse 44, same chapter, John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the first time he says all that the Father gives me um, will come to me and I will certainly not cast out. And then he flips it around and, and says it in a different way where he says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me. So if the Father sends you, you will be saved. And, and there is no way for you to be able to go to Christ unless the Father sends you. So, he, he really draws uh, two absolutes on both sides in terms of the, the Father is very, very specific about who he sends and that everyone he sends will absolutely be saved. Now, the, this is really, when I look at irresistible grace, it's kind of the flip side to total depravity. So, total depravity, in, in my view, would say that no one in their own nature would ever want to choose God. Um, it's not that they're. Um, it's not that God prevents them from choosing Him, but it's that in their nature they would never choose Him. Whereas irresistible grace, now that they've received a new nature, irresistible grace um, presumes that God has regenerated their heart. They have received the truth. They understand the truth, and now in their new nature and in understanding the truth, having their eyes opened, they will absolutely respond the way that the gospel requires us to respond, which is to repent and believe. And so, once again, this is not to say that people are um, pushed in one direction or another against their will, but that I would say that their will is informed by their condition, whether they are in a natural state of hating God or whether they have been given a new nature and now see the truth, love the truth, and want to embrace the truth. Yeah, and I think, you know, a good to support that point, I mean, when you go to Ephesians, and I forget if it's in chapter two or three now, but um, the start talks about how that we were in uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And it goes on to describe what our nature and our character is before salvation. I think that's in chapter two. Um, It says, you know, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then it goes on to talk about how we follow the ways of the world, indulged in the lusts of the flesh, uh, according to the power of the prince of the air. And then and then in the end of that uh, verse two or three there, it defines us in a pre-save state as being children of wrath. Well, if if you are by nature a child of wrath, then certainly you would never choose anything of God, right? You don't have the capability of it. In fact, it describes you as being dead in every way. We've spoken about this before. You go to the Old Testament, it talks about um, a heart of stone being turned into a heart of flesh. Well, what power does man have in a fallen dead state as a child of wrath to choose God? Well, he, he wouldn't. Um, right. And so, when we talk about will this way, part of it is just understanding uh, our sinful nature and the depravity of man. So, really, all of these points ultimately go back to the very first one, which is just simply understanding uh, the fallen nature of man and, and yeah. how that affects the way we think, the way we act, and our choices. Um, if you mess that up, then certainly you you can come up with a bunch of doctrine that just isn't supported biblically. Um, and, and then I love that the scripture is so very clear on the, the point of irresistible grace in so many places. I mean, another one is John chapter 10. You go to John chapter 10 and 26. Uh, let me read this. He said, this is Jesus speaking, right? He says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, mm-hmm. right? 
my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's a case for perseverance, but we'll get there later. My father who has given them to me. I mean, again, so why are they, why do they belong to Christ? Verse 20, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and I and the Father are one. And so, again, we have it here. Um, clearly, those who have been chosen by God, um, they will all call, come to him, right? Irresistible grace. So, what, what's the opposite yep. of that? Oh, you go, do you have anything to add to that, brother? Yeah, I, I would just say that what you just read, I mean, that's really an extension of what Jesus Christ started to teach them in John chapter six, yeah. where he says, you know, basically, you can't come to me unless the father sends you. And if you are sent, you will absolutely be saved. And even at the end of John chapter six, we've mentioned this before, after a lot of his disciples walk away, he turns to the 12 and say, you guys aren't going to leave also, aren't you? And then Peter gives the great confession that uh, we have come to believe that you are the Holy One uh, of Israel. Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that sounds like a great confession, but then Jesus actually rebukes him, say, did not I not choose you first? And then by the time you get to John chapter 10, that verse you just read, I mean, really, this is such an important distinction to say, that, you know, why is it that you do not believe because you are not my sheep? Um, we would typically turn that around. Um, why are you not my sheep? Because you don't believe. In other words, yeah. if you believe, of course, you're going to be my sheep, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying that if you're my sheep, then you will believe. And then he goes to say, I have other sheep and I'm going to go out and, and call out to them and they're going to follow me as well. And so that, uh, that implies that his sheep have been marked out even before they heard his voice. Yeah. And, and again, that goes back to the election that's required because of the depravity of man. Yeah. And so we can hop all the way back to Ephesians chapter one. Uh, which really, it gives us, uh, the, we find the order, the order salutis here, but he goes back and, and I love the, it is such a crystal clear place in scripture to see um, just God. I mean, you see God, the father's work in our salvation. You see um, God, the son's work in our salvation, and you see God, the Holy Spirit's work in our salvation all in one chapter. But in the first, you know, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then you get to verse four, and he says, just as he chose us in him. Well, when did he do that? Before the foundations of the world. So, yeah. you, you, you didn't even have the capability. You didn't even right. physically exist yet. And here, we have a statement of God choosing the sheep before even the foundation of the world. So, you really could never come to any other conclusion even just a very plain reading of scripture. Yeah, and I think the counter to this, the way this would be argued against is foreknowledge. So a lot of people will say, well, God uh, knew this ahead of time. The foreknowledge describes the fact that he looked down the corridors of time. He saw how you would respond. And in seeing that you would choose him, he ended up choosing you. Well, th the problem is that the scriptures don't emphasize you choosing him. It emphasizes him choosing you. And um, foreknowledge, when you really study it, foreknowledge is that he knew you, not that he looked down the corridors of time and saw that you would do. Right. Um, and that ends up being the, the sticking point um, over this topic. Now, let me make this clear, because there are a lot of 
good and godly brethren that struggle with this, all right? I know a lot of people who I think are very sincere in the Lord. I believe they are truly in the Lord. I have no doubt about that. But they do struggle with this, and, and they have a hard time grappling with foreknowledge, uh, being a relationship with you even before you're created versus looking down the corridors of time mm-hmm. and and seeing what you've done. And, and what I would say is this, and, and especially John chapter 6 is so powerful. I'm going to go back to that, that chapter. In that chapter, you have both man's responsibility as well as God's sovereignty um, stated side by side. But ultimately, when you get down to the end of the chapter, when Peter gives the confession that reveals the truth that only Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life and that uh, Jesus Christ indeed is the Holy One uh, of God, um, Jesus, rather than congratulating him, saying, that's, that's it, you got it, he basically reminds him that, did I not choose you first? And, and what I see in that statement is that, Peter, the reason why you know that is because I chose you. I didn't choose you because you, I knew you would say that. You said that because I chose you. And so, I, I believe that uh, when you put them side by side, there is a priority that has to be there. Um, either we are the ones that chose or God is the one that chose. And I believe what you see over and over again, it's God. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, if you, and I, I would encourage folks, if you're, there are groups of people, as you say, there are dear brothers and sisters in Christ who they want to understand how God works in our salvation and how man responds. And they're asking genuine questions. And we, we really want to give focus and attention to those folks. Um, you have the other folks who aren't really interested at all in what the Bible teaches, right? Uh, they just want to pick a side for whatever reason, and, and they're not yeah. interested in the scripture. So, I, I'm not interested in those people um, for, for this. But if you, I, I think, and you can comment on this, some good places to go. I, I always send people to Ephesians. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and from there, I take them to these other passages because it gives such a clear picture. And then at the end, um, in, and you can correct me, I, I think it's a, so between Ephesians chapter one and three, read those three chapters, because yeah. what you have is the very foundation and start of your salvation, which is God choosing you before the foundations, right? And so, before you exist even, and you get all the way down, and then Paul tells us the reason why that is. He says, so that no one may boast, right? Yeah. In, in yeah. other words, mm-hmm. there is a reason that you don't have a part in this. And the reason is so that God receives all of the glory due him. And I think it helps us understand when we read all of that, we kind of take a step back and look at the whole picture. We see Paul saying, well, why is all of this this way? Well, the reason is so that no man may boast, right? You can't boast in in your choice, in your salvation, uh, because it was God working from the very beginning, from the very foundation. Um, and I think if you take the Arminian way, and, and again, you know, we should always ask the question, if, w- what does my theological position, what's, what are the implications of it at its very end? Well, whether I get there or not really doesn't make any difference, but w- what's the ending implication of that? Well, the ending implication of the other position is that God's ability to save is determined or bound by man's choice, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, it, if, and that is the implication, right? right. It, right. If God somehow looked down the cor- had to look down the corridor uh, of time and, and find who would choose him and wouldn't, and he based his uh, decision of salvation upon that, then that would, in the issue of salvation, make man sovereign over God, because God would be bound and limited 
100% by the choice of man. Yeah. Well, if if we, I don't think anyone would agree with that, right? Uh, but that is the implication of that position, right? Yeah, and, and I think what it comes down to in many ways is um, how much we want to elevate this idea of choice. Because I, I hear a lot of people emphasizing that, especially Christians. God gave you a choice. God gave you a choice. That's something that they want to emphasize. And as much as this might offend some people, um, the, the Bible actually never says that. It never talks about um, that, uh, that, that God gave you the choice, even though we would say that the choice is inherent in these commands that uh, choose this day whom you will serve, um, those kinds of things. Um, but uh, yeah, we have to come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign. We are not. And if we want to make this about man's choice, then really you're just putting God in the background and he's just putting it out there. And really now it's up to you to go ahead and uh, determine whether you accept it or not. And if that's the case, and it really is up to man, you know, the other question is, well, why doesn't everyone accept the truth for what it is? I mean, why, why would anyone want to choose hell? Why would anyone want to go against uh, what is good, right, and, and holy? And the fact of the matter is some respond to it and, and some don't. And, uh, and, and you have to come to grips with, well, why is that? Is it because some are just better than others? Because I think you have to kind of imply that in some way that, well, you both people heard the truth. This one chose it. This one didn't. So, in some ways, this one was better. Uh, he, he, he saw better. He made a wiser decision. Well, you know, that starts to give more of the credit to man in that case, whereas um, that specific individual um, took more time to think about it, uh, was more open to the truth, uh, those kinds of things, where the fact is, once again, we get back to the depravity of man. No one, um, Paul makes it clear, no one chooses God, um, no one uh, follows, uh, follows him, no one seeks after him, all have turned aside, together they've become useless, no one does good, no, not one. So, again, we're, we're trying to tie Scripture together and, and provide um, the, um, the overall framework that makes the most sense with what we see in Scripture. And then I do believe that uh, this position, we can make sense of both man's responsibility as well as God's absolute sovereignty. But if you flip it the other way, I think you're going to have a lot more difficulties trying to explain the passages of God's choosing and predestining. And as you mentioned, Ephesians chapter 2, so that no man may boast, but also chapter 2, verse 5, that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Mm -hmm. um, he made us alive together again with Christ. Yeah, right. While we were dead. I mean, that's a good point. So, I've got that pulled up. It was in 2. You go on down, um, the verse that we were quoting in verse 8, it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Right. So not your own choice, not your own participation, just very simply by grace. Grace from who? Well, obviously, that's the grace of God. Right. Uh, We don't share in that. Um, Goes on to say, uh, so for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So just in case there was an argument, it's almost like God, uh, you know, knew that we would have these difficulties and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And so, this was the reason, right? And so, we do see that if, if it were any other way, the opposite of this statement would be true. We would have to say that it involves the works of man. Yeah. The very reason the passage says, 
not as a result of works um, it, because you would have to include that. And, and then if it is a work, you could go exactly to where you said, then it becomes an issue of, well, you know, I made the better decision. Maybe yeah. I was a little smarter, a little brighter, a little better. And so I chose Christ. And if you were more like me, you would choose Christ too. Well, yeah. then who, who's really receiving the glory there, right? right. I, is it man uh, or is it God? And so it's not that the Calvinist position is trying to um, put God in a box or anything like that. Uh, we're trying to understand, like you say, in in its greatest totality, what the scriptures teach us um, through the lens of of understanding that ultimately God has to receive the glory for for the salvific work of mankind. And if any doctrinal position would lead man to receiving glory, then there's error in that view somewhere. Yeah. And I think there's also, um, there's also in following the framework that we're talking about that, that God is sovereign, that he's the one that elects that man is completely depraved and we can't come to him unless he regenerates our heart. Um, there, there is um, a sense of comfort in it in this way. When you share the gospel, um, it's not about methods, okay? Um, I think when you start to get caught up in this idea of man having the choice, then it very clearly over the history of man, people who kind of take this view, it um, there, there's a temptation to turn evangelism into uh, methods. Okay, what can we do to draw them in? What can we do to make make Christ more appealing? What can we do to make the gospel sound more appealing? And and what often happens is that people will start to compromise on the truth, or people will try to draw people in based upon worldly kind of um, ideals and, and entertainment and you end up compromising the church you end up making people more like you end up making the church more like the world rather than uh, trying to trying to make the world more like the the church so it's not about methods and and again i'm going to go back again to the the book of john and you're right i, I think Ephesians lays it out really clearly, very well. But I think the book of John, which is of the four gospels, it is considered the most evangel evangelistic of the four gospels, yeah. right? That's the gospel that you give to someone who uh, who's brand new to the faith or someone who wants to know what Jesus Christ and Christianity is all about. You, you typically go to, go to the book of John. And John just emphasizes over and over again, the central purpose of the book of John shows up at the end of the book of John when John writes, these things have been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you will have eternal life. So obviously, believing in Jesus Christ is central to the entire book. And yet you will see as early as chapter two, but going onwards, you will see John use that word, that same word believe to describe people who initially came to Christ and then rejected him. Um, and so what we see throughout the book of John is this very carefully crafted tension by the apostle Paul, that there is a difference between those who believe falsely and those who believe the absolute truth. And not only that, what becomes crystal clear as you follow the the, the words and the actions of Jesus Christ throughout is that not only is there a difference between the false and the true, but Jesus never, uh, he, he never motivates, he, he never alters his approach. He never tries to appeal to those who walk away. He doesn't compromise his message. He doesn't try to make it more worldly. He doesn't try to make it more appealing to them. In fact, what he continues to do is just double down upon the truth. Now, so when it comes to methods, I would say this, the only method that matters is being faithful to the scriptures. And that should take that that should be a huge relief to all Christians yeah. because then what our focus should be is knowing Christ 
knowing the scriptures. If you know Christ, if you know the scriptures, then you know how to present the gospel in a way that glorifies God. So when I talk to people and will recommend one church or the other, it's because primarily I believe that one pastor is much more faithful to what the Bible says than the other. And if one has become more dependent upon methods, that means they've gone away from what the Bible says and believes that they have a different idea that's not necessarily prescribed to us in scripture. Yeah, well, this is this is really the kind of the birth of the pragmatic movement w- was misunderstanding a lot of these things in scripture, right? Yeah. If it's up to you, uh, then pragmatism would would be great, but yeah. it's but it's not, right? Salvation is not up to us. Um, it, you know, another thing just to think about as we're talking about this kind of thing in methods in terms of evangelism is if you if you understand this and you take that view, then again, it relieves a lot of stress. Um, rightfully, because it puts God's responsibility on God, and it and it doesn't it doesn't elevate our responsibility to a godlike responsibility, right? Um, as you say, our responsibility is to know the scriptures so that we can communicate the gospel as clearly as we can, um, and and that's it. Other than that, choose whatever method you want. Um, that's faithful to the, the scriptures, right? So, if you want to use tracks that are biblically yeah, sound, use right. them. If you want to do street evangelism, do it. If you want to, you know, evangelize in the door to door, door to door, do it. I, you know, yeah. whatever, it's fine. Um, but what, but what we shouldn't do is fall into the trap of because we think um, that. It, it isn't irresistible grace because we misunderstand that. We think somehow we're the ones that have to convince people. And this is the danger of it. The reality is if you don't believe irresistible grace, if, if you don't believe that, right, that um, nothing prevents God's people from coming to him whom he's chosen, then you are responsible for everyone yeah. around you that you can't convince to come to Christ. Yeah. It would yeah, put it, that whole burden on you. Yes, yes, that's right. And and, and let me let me give you an example um, of this taken to an extreme where we have seen this in America. Uh, let me I'll take Joel Osteen as an example. So Joel Osteen, we know that he preaches pretty much a prosperity gospel, and and what he has done as is he has taken kind of the seeker sensitive. Uh, movement to its extreme, where really he's just trying to appeal to them to make them feel good. Um, I want to motivate you. I want to make you feel good. I want you to believe that God wants you to accomplish whatever it is that uh, you want to accomplish. And so he has drawn uh, one of the largest, at one point, the largest church in America. I don't know if he's still there, but certainly one of the largest churches in America. And and they're drawn to him because of that message. Now, what also happens, if you ever watch one of these sermons from Joel Osteen, and typically they're, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, um, and uh, you, you'll listen to it all, he'll quote typically two or three Bible passages, but Every time I've seen him quote the Bible, he always takes it out of context. And not only that, but he doesn't actually present the gospel. Um, He doesn't present the gospel. And if he does talk about anything that kind of relates to the gospel, what he doesn't mention is sin. He doesn't mention sin. He doesn't mention the consequence of sin, which is death, eternal eternal death in the lake of fire, which is hell. Um, those are things that he doesn't talk about because those are things that are not popular. People don't want to hear that because it sounds judgmental. It scares people away. And you know this too, Nathaniel, when we're on social media, a lot of times we'll share just 
biblical truths. And a lot of times what people come back with is you're driving people away from the church. You're, you're causing people to run away. And this is also what's happening with the LGBTQ movement. Now, I would say that there is an error of a number of Christians, or at least people who call themselves Christians, that really treat the LGBTQ mm-hmm. movement uh, with hatred. You think um, like to, the Westboro Baptist guys. Yeah, the, the Westboro Baptist yeah. guys, um, people who encourage violence or who support violence yeah. against them, which we should never do. Um, we, we simply stand upon the fact that the scriptures say that this kind of behavior is sin. Um, people who practice this behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God, just as they practice any other kinds of sin that mm-hmm. stands against God. And, and so, we, we have to preach that, and we have to preach that especially now because that movement has been so influential upon society to the point now where we have uh, the bills being passed, uh, laws being passed, where mm-hmm. or, or teachers at, as early as the elementary school level, where they want to introduce them to uh, deviant sexual concepts rather than allow the parents the responsibility yeah. to, to handle that. So, this is the reason why we have to stand against this and, and talk about it. But what a lot of churches have done, what a lot of other Christians, or at least those who call themselves such, who believe that we are driving people away from the church because of the way we are standing upon the fact that um, this, this kind of behavior is deviant, it is sin, and people who practice such sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, this what, what is the solution? Well, the solution is to embrace them, to welcome them, to not, um, not let them know Know about the need for repentance. Um, and in some cases, and for a lot of these churches, and eventually I believe they get there, they start to affirm. They start to affirm, they start to ordain ministers, and, uh, and, and they start to, um, start to become advocates for this movement in terms of their, their rights to do whatever they want, which, by the way, um, it's not that we're against their rights as human beings, but often when they push their rights, it's really seeking to suppress the rights of the church. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the these things really matter, right? And and they have they affect other things. And so if you get these doctrines wrong, you end up with all kind of methods and means and modes of evangelism that um, just isn't biblical. And and one of them is that very thing, right? We want to we we want to convince the LGBT community that God loves them, and so we just now we have quote unquote homosexual Christians. Um, which is totally and utterly foreign to Scripture, right? If you're if you have to define your your Christianity by a sin, right? If the prefix is a sin, it's not Christianity. Um, but part of the issue, not all of it, but part of that is having a wrong understanding of irresistible grace, e- even if people didn't know that's right the term for it. Um, but we're not responsible right for who does and doesn't come to christ now i will say this there um maybe we'll do another episode on what's hyper calvinism um i think it's rare but it's out there there are those who would say well the belief in calvinism leads to people who just don't believe in evangelism well no that's not true um out on the street or wherever um you'll find people who if they claim to be you know follow the, the calvinistic you know, form of doctrines, you'll find that they're very evangelistic if they're believers, yeah, right? right? And and the difference is just very simply this. Um, you and I can go out and evangelize or whatever context we're doing that, and we can go home uh, after that, and we can sleep well because we're leaving God's part up to God. 
we're not worried about you know who did or didn't respond necessarily as long as we were able to communicate the gospel um versus the arminian view you have to worry about whether you were good enough in your communication because uh that person might go to hell and if it was just an issue of your poor communication then that's on you right but then you see actually you become god in in a sense yeah right because it's up to you whether they get saved or not I would say the other thing um, in regards to that is, it, it, you know, when when we're evangelizing, we're just trying. Our view is we're we don't know who God has and hasn't chosen, right? That's not the Calvinist view is to even try to find out who uh, we're we're not trying to pick and choose who we think God's chosen and who He hasn't. Right? right. That doesn't factor into the understanding of irresistible grace. So. As a result, we just simply preach to, to everybody. We preach the gospel to everybody because we don't know who God's called to himself or who he will call to himself. And that is the Calvinistic view. And so if you were just to look on the outside, you really wouldn't see any difference between evangelism uh, from someone who believes in irresistible grace and maybe evangelism from someone who doesn't. Your differences would be in how they think and process and, and, and why they use the methods that they use. But both should, would be evangelistic, right? So, true Calvinism does not produce coldness in evangelism. Yeah. In fact, it produces a far freer and God-honoring evangelism because it basically says, you know what, God, I'm going to preach the gospel to everyone knowing that you alone can save and I have no part in their salvation. And so, we're going to leave that up to you. Yeah. Well, let's move yeah, on. And, 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 and oh, we, let me just add this. We glorify God when we share the truth. Um, so we, we do it in order to glorify God. And all this to say that, you know, while we, what we say is true, it's not, it's not based upon your methods. Um, it's not based upon how clear or unclear you were. Now, does that mean we don't have to be clear? Well, no, you should be clear um, because you want to be clear about what the Bible teaches. The, the only method, like I said, the only method that matters is what the Bible teaches us. So, we want to be faithful to that method, which is being clear about what the Bible teaches about man, about Jesus Christ, about sin, about what he accomplished on the cross. And the more clear you are, um, the more of a responsibility there is upon the here to respond to that, recognizing, though, um, that ultimately they can't respond unless God actually regenerates their heart. But I think of um, Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, the first commandment uh, that Paul gives shows up in verse 27, where he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, in other words, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel is to stand together in the faith of the gospel. And he goes on to say in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. So, in other words, one of the signs that you are saved is that you actually stand in the faith of the gospel, meaning you share the gospel, you trust in the gospel, you, you help bring other people to, to faith through the gospel, recognizing that those who stand against it, who reject it, who, um, who continue to, uh, to, to be scoffers um, against that, well, that's going to be a sign of their destruction if they do not repent. 
Um, so we 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 do this because God has called us to do it. We we do this because we are seeking to be faithful to the scriptures. And yet, just as First Peter chapter three verse fifteen said, um, do it always with gentleness and reverence. Right, always be yeah. prepared to make yeah. a defense for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and reverence. So we we do want to be clear. We do want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be able to show our our conviction in Christ. Uh, we want to do it uh, with a heart that desires for them to be saved. I think of the Apostle Paul and his fellow Jews, right, in Romans chapter 9. And by the way, Romans chapter 9 is one of the strongest chapters as well on the sovereignty of God, right, that God is the one who's ultimately sovereign. But how does Paul start off that chapter? He starts off that chapter saying, I myself wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. So, we knew that he had a heart for his fellow Jews. He desperately wanted to see them saved, even though he understood um, that God already had his plan. He still went out to every city he went to. The first place he went to was the synagogue yeah. um, to build a witness to those Jews because he wanted them to come to a knowledge of the truth, to accept the truth, and to be the one to, ones to evangelize the truth in those areas. Yeah, absolutely. So, we've got to understand that. And And by the way, this is one of the reasons why um, it, it's not really a great question to put any weight behind asking someone, you know, how many people they've seen saved, right, in their evangelism, yeah. because it's not up to them. The, right. the better question would be, are you evangelizing when you get the opportunity? Are you faithful with that, right? Um, and, yeah, and, and, and that's exactly. one of the problems in the SBC, right. uh, by the way. I mean, just, just to mention that, because it's such a huge thing, there's such an emphasis on, well, how many people did you lead to the Lord? Well, well. First of all, you, you've never left. Any, you've never led anyone to the Lord. Um, God is the one who draws people to Him. Um, you're just faithful to preach the gospel and yeah. see who does and doesn't respond. But that's such a big issue. It's one of the problems that uh, we see in the SBC, such a heavy emphasis on those numbers, right? Which leads to the very thing we've been talking about, um, methods to get numbers rather than just promoting faithfulness in yeah. proclaiming the gospel and evangelizing when you can, right? Um, because you, you might evangelize for 20 years and never personally see one person come to Christ. Does that mean you were a failure? No. Uh, you wouldn't be alone. Yeah. Noah built an ark for 120 years, and he didn't convince anyone. Um, Jesus made a couple statements and lost all of his followers except 12. So I'm not sure he would make it in the SBC as a picture of church growth, as yeah. it were. Um, well, and we have the biographies of people like William Carey, right? Yeah. How long it took before he finally started to see response in India. And that was, I believe, decades, right? Yeah. And yeah. we go to the Old Testament. You have the testimony of people like Jeremiah. Um, he was a prophet uh, in, uh, in Judah for close to 50 years and did not see a single person repent. And then on the flip side, you get someone like Jonah, who is trying to run away from the will of God, gets swallowed up by, uh, by a giant whale, giant fish, gets spit out on land. He goes uh, against his own will, says 40 days and, uh, and, and you will fall. And then the entire city repents. The entire city right? repents, yeah. You know, so I, and, and certainly I wouldn't call Jonah a more faithful um, preacher than, than Jeremiah. I think also of God when he spoke to Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the prophet while they're in Babylon. And he called him, he said to him, said, you are the watchman of Israel, which means this. If I tell you to say something mm -hmm. and you don't say it, then I'm going to hold you responsible for their lack of repentance. But if you say it and then they don't repent, then I will not hold you responsible because you 
were faithful to do what yep. you were called to do. So it's the same thing. It's the same thing with us. And you can look at the New Testament, the deacon Stephen, right? The deacon Stephen was not a deacon for very long. He was um, contesting uh, the, the the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ, and they couldn't contend with his wisdom, with the power of the Spirit that was working with him. So they brought him before the Sanhedrin, gives this um, th- this blistering message in Acts chapter seven, and at the end of it, what was the result? They stoned him to death, right? Well, that doesn't seem very successful. Well, in the eyes of God, I would say that he absolutely glorified God, yeah. and the result came afterwards. So, and that's the other thing too. There are a lot of people that when they come to faith, they didn't come to faith with the first presentation of the gospel they ever they ever heard. Now, some did, but there are a lot of people that may have heard the gospel repeatedly throughout their lives, and they finally get got to a point where they 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 confessed, they repented, they put their faith into Jesus Christ. Would we say that all the prior times that the gospel was shared was useless? Well, no, I believe that God used each and every one of those uh, presentations to help bring that person to the point where finally, by God's timing, they would finally respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, irresistible grace, again, the Calvinist view is that nothing prevents God from saving those whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world, that every person God has chosen will be saved through faith in Christ through the call of the Holy Spirit. All of the work of God, none of the work of man, our part is simply the proclamation of the gospel. So, the Arminian view would be effectual resistance. Effectual resistance. Well, what is that? Well, effectual resistance is the understanding that God is sovereign, but he is not sovereign over salvation. That man's will can permanently render God unable to save. And we've talked about that. God wants to save everyone, but he's incapable of doing so for the man who will not let him. Now, that's an accurate um, understanding of that view, because again, God's ability to save, right, is predicated on man's choice. And so, if yeah. man says no, then God is bound by the choice of, of man. If, if man says yes, then only then God is allowed to save him. And, and I'm trying to use my language carefully, but you can see the issues just in communicating it that way, right? And, and I think when, you underst- when we say that and, and we help people understand the, the issues with that, I don't know that anyone would be comfortable saying God is limited by man, right? right. Um, but, but I don't know that we often think through the implication of, things, of these things. But that is, if man has the ability to reject God um, and God, so to get around that issue, we say, well, um, God just chooses those who would choose him first, again, the sovereignty is placed on man's choice and, and not on God's choice. And so yeah. we have issues there. And we've talked about that. Any, any other thoughts? And maybe we should end here, um, unless we want to go an hour and a half on this <laughs> one. But we'll, we'll try to keep it a little bit short. So uh, any, any last thoughts on yeah, conditional I, I do, election? Yeah, and I, and I do like what you said when, when you said that um, this is not, you know, the, the gospel presented by someone who's an Arminian versus the gospel presented by someone who's a Calvinist is essentially going to look and sound the same way, unless one has given into methods. But the, the gospel may very well sound the same way. And, and these truths that we're talking about um, are not necessarily a part of the gospel message itself. Now, I know a lot of people will quote Spurgeon, that Spurgeon said 
something to the effect of Calvinism is the gospel. Um, I'd have to look at the larger context in, in which he made that statement. Um, but the statement itself, I would disagree with if you're trying to equate Calvinism with the gospel. No, the gospel is the good news of salvation. The, the gospel is the good news of the work of Christ and the salvation that he has pr- brought to those who uh, repent and, and put their faith into him. Um, all these other things that we're talking about is really trying to understand um, from the big picture, the full history of redemption and how God ended up working and, and receiving all the glory for the work of redemption that he accomplished. And then I think when you look at the Old Testament, you see um, testament, testimony after testimony about how no matter what God does for man externally, he never responds the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, so God has to do a uh, work in the heart. Yeah, and you talk about Spurgeon. I've got a quote here uh, by Spurgeon, which I think is a very good one. He, Spurgeon says, I believe that very much of current Arminianism is simply ignorance of gospel doctrine. And if people began to study their Bibles and to take the word of God as they find it, they must inevitably, if believers, rise up to rejoice in the doctrines of grace. And we often refer to Calvinism as the doctrines of grace. Yeah. At the end of the day, if, you're, if we're honest and we look at these positions, Arminianism very much does and demands it be um, a, a work-based salvation because man has to choose God on his own accord, which would be a work. It also binds God to the will of man. And so it puts man's sovereignty above the sovereignty of God. And so, you know, I think for those who are just very simply asking the question, well, I want to believe what the Bible says, right? And there are some difficulties. I mean, uh, there are most certainly difficulties in scripture. And even when we talk about these things, you're talking about salvation and how God's will works with man's will. There's certainly some mysterious things in here. Um, Exactly where are the line of those things between, uh, you know, God's will and man's responsibility? Well, we can't tell you in every instance, Um, But what we can say is both things we find in Scripture, and therefore both things must be true. We can understand, I think, to a great extent, but there certainly is mystery. So our goal isn't to understand God in all of his complexities such that we can say, I've got God down, right? That's just not going to happen. We're the creature, and he's the creator. But I think if we go through these things with Scripture— Um, inevitably, we have to come to the conclusion that the Arminian view, as we've seen it, just puts man above God, and it creates a workspace salvation. Therefore, it can't be true, right? Now, and that's why I said earlier on, I think that Arminianism genuinely is heresy. Some other theologians would disagree with that. I know um, William Ames, who was an English Puritan, said that it is an extremely serious error tending to heresy. Um, But I also would say that most people aren't genuine Arminians, because if you state the actual position, I just don't know that anyone you and I know probably who would take an Arminian view would say, well, yes, uh, God is bound by the will of man. Well, people don't believe, most Christians wouldn't say that, right? They'd be uncomfortable with that. Well, if you're uncomfortable with that statement, then you don't share that Arminian view. Um, and, and, so, and so that's why I say that. I think it's heresy. Um, I think the saving grace is most people don't really believe what Arminianism teaches. Yeah. They're just yeah. 
Um, they're just uncomfortable with some misunderstanding. And that's why Spurgeon's quote is really good, right? Um, so, guys, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, we, we've got one, maybe two more episodes. N- the next episode um, that we do in, yeah. in this series, yeah, we'll do on perseverance and falling from grace. Can you lose your salvation? It's a big question. Um, or once saved, always saved. And what do we mean when we say that? Um, some people mean different things, but what is the biblical understanding? So hope you'll join us for these things. We hope that this podcast has been helpful to you. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.